You probably know that I am a sports fan. I'm not as much of an athlete anymore. Most of the sports I played, I don't do so well at in my 60s. Golf's still not so bad, though. I still do okay on that. But in most team sports, there is an 18-year-old draft that takes place at some point between seasons. And my favorite team is the Toronto Maple Leafs, and I will see them draft this young guy, and I'm thinking, why did you pick that player? Your team is full of small players, and you've just picked another small, quick player. You need a big guy that's going to kind of keep players away from in front of, of our net. But then maybe the team goes through a series of choosing these big guys that are slow and they don't have any smaller, quick, talented players. And then I'll say, why didn't you pick that guy? He he had 60 goals last year. He'd be perfect for the team. When we look at Mary and her choice to be the mother of the Son of God, we ask that same question. We ask, why Mary? She wasn't a person of royalty. Uh, She didn't live in a palace. She had no political position or power. Why Mary? Uh, She was a poor Galilean girl. And when Jesus was born, uh, she and Joseph were required by their Jewish law to actually offer a lamb as a sacrifice at the temple. But they were so poor, they could only afford two birds instead. So why Mary? She wasn't especially educated. So how was she going to raise the Son of God and and teach him? And she wasn't engaged to be married to some type of king. She was engaged to be married to a, a carpenter, a poor carpenter. So why Mary? She was a poor teenage girl. Nothing impressive about her would have caught your eye on a resume. But... This is the incarnation that we're talking about. God becoming a human being. So if there was ever going to be a time for God to be choosy, now's the time. So why Mary? We don't know much about Mary. There isn't even enough for a short biography. And we really don't know much about her life before Jesus was born. And we don't know much about her while Jesus was being brought up by her. We don't know when and where she died. You can read everything about her in a couple of minutes. She's just kind of making this cameo appearance in the Bible. She rarely gets a speaking part. She's mentioned once in the book of Acts and not again in Scripture. So why Mary? Now some denominations have tried to make Mary out to be more than Scripture reveals her to be. And they will teach some unbiblical ideas about Mary. One of them is that she had perpetual virginity. They say that after she gave birth to Jesus, she remained a virgin for the rest of her life. But the Gospel of Matthew talks about the fact that Jesus' mother and his brothers came to see him. They were concerned about him not getting a rest in his ministry. So he had siblings. Then there's the teaching that it wasn't just Jesus who was sinless, that Mary was sinless as well. But we read Romans 3.23, which says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So 
we can understand why people want to make her out to be more than she really is, but scripture doesn't reveal that she was sinless. Some will even say that she is the mediator between God and humanity. But we read in 1 Timothy chapter 2, for there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus. So Mary cannot serve in that role either. And then there's another title given to Mary, and it's co-redemptress. And this is the teaching that Mary saves us as well as Jesus. And I wasn't aware of this until we had a team go to Poland for a mission trip. It was actually just over three years ago. And everywhere you went, Mary's here, Jesus is here. They have her elevated above our Lord and our Savior. Now, we then read in Acts chapter 4, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. So we want to honor her. She deserves honor. But listen, that we can't make her equal with Jesus or even above him. And when we read about Mary, I don't think that's something that she would have wanted herself. So Luke chapters 1 and 2 tell us the most about Mary. And even in there, she's not the main character. But she does provide for us an example of humility, a picture of humility in this story. So we're picking up in verse 26 of chapter 1. In the sixth month, so this was the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, and Elizabeth was a cousin of Mary, and she was pregnant with who we know to be John the Baptist. And God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee. Now Nazareth wasn't a town that you'd be proud to be from. The people used to mock it in those days. It sat on 10 acres of land, and it only had less than 300 people living in it. And one of the 12 apostles, Nathaniel, he even said this. He said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? So Mary's this teenage girl from a very humble town, and I don't even know if God would have to use Google Earth for the angel Gabriel to find this little village, but he gets there. And in verse 27, to a virgin uh, pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David, the virgin's name was Mary. And the angel went to her and said, greetings, you who are highly favored, the Lord is with you. Now maybe growing up in the church you did, you might have memorized this this way, Hail Mary, full of grace. It is a beautiful verse, but the focus isn't so much on Mary's worthiness as it is on the fact that God's grace has been poured on her. So in 29, Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. So she's a little nervous. She's afraid that maybe she did something wrong, and that's why she's having this visit from this angel. Then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. So here's the big question. What is it about Mary that drew the favor of God? I, I think it was actually her humble spirit. Humility isn't something that most of us are, are interested in. 
if we were to call this message the picture of power or the picture of success or the picture of leadership, you'd get a lot more interest. But to say the picture of humility, there aren't many self-help books out there on how to be humble. Yet in scripture, humility is what opens the door to God's favor. The 18th Psalm says, you save the humble, but bring low those whose eyes are haughty. So the humble will be saved, the pride-filled people won't be. James 4.10, humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. So if we have a proper idea of ourselves, God will honor that. So Mary finds favor with God, and Gabriel says to Mary in verse 31, You will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. Now Mary knows what's happening here. She has been hearing the prophecies about the coming of the Messiah for centuries now. The Jews have been waiting for this. So she's not caught off guard here. She's looking for a Messiah. But she never thought that she was going to be the one that gave birth to the Messiah, that she would be the mother. So you can just imagine how overwhelmed this young woman is at this news. And her first question is reasonable in verse 34. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? Uh, Maybe some of you are skeptical about the virgin birth, and you might find comfort in knowing the fact that Mary herself was a little skeptical here. She knew what it took to make babies, and that hadn't taken place in her life Yet she's being told that she is going to be with child. So Gabriel assures Mary by simply reminding her about what God's been able to do in the past. So we pick up in verse 35. The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. So even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who was said to be barren is in her sixth month. For nothing is impossible with God. So he's saying, remember your cousin Elizabeth? Remember the fact that everybody thinks that she's too old to be able to have a child? Well, ta-da, she's six months pregnant. There isn't anything impossible with God. So then he says to her, don't worry about the details. You let God take care of that. He'll work all of that out. And then in verse 38, I love this simple statement of humble obedience. She said, I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. And may it be to me as you have said. And then the angel left her. So what a tremendous humble response. And then Mary goes to visit her cousin Elizabeth. And we read what is often referred to as Mary's song. And the words of this song reveal her humble heart. And notice how she barely mentions herself, but how often she talks about God. So this is in verses 46 to 55. My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. 
For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him. From generation to generation, he has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, even as he said to our fathers. So in this passage of scripture, in this song, Mary reveals what humility is all about. And humility is, first of all, having an accurate view of ourselves and recognizing just how small we are. It's having an accurate view of God and then recognizing how big he actually is. And Mary understands what that means. And in the Greek way of thinking, being a servant was actually an absolutely shameful thing to do. To surrender to your will to someone else was the height of humiliation. Yet Mary says, I am the Lord's servant. Now it's really neat to watch the pride on a mother's face. I'd watch my mother when people would tell her how handsome her sons were. And I'm wondering, how can they even see our faces? We've got so much hair back in those days. I wish I still had a little bit to cover my forehead. Every time I smack my head, everything is quite evident up there. But uh, I'd watch my mother's face, and, 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 and then I would watch her face when we would... Uh, accomplish something significant. I remember watching her face when she came to hear my first sermon. I was in my second year of Bible college and I was speaking at our chapel service and I could see tears in her eyes and I don't know if it was the worst 10 minutes of her life or if it was pride. I'm going with the pride thing. And then my wedding day to Pat and then when Pat and I brought grandchildren into the family and you see the pride on your mother's face through all of that. Now Mary had a lot of reasons to be proud. Of all the women that lived, God chose her to be the mother of his son. So that could be a source of pride. And just think what it would be like raising the perfect child. There's nothing more annoying than a parent who has a gifted child and they tell everyone about him or her. So Mary, she could have had a bumper sticker on her chariot that said, creator of the universe on board. And she could have been so proud, yet she has this accurate view of herself and she recognizes that she's actually just part of the supporting cast in all of this. So, but pride has a way of sneaking up on us and saying things like, go ahead and buy it. You deserve it. You can pay for it later. Or pride says that it's your spouse's fault. I deserve somebody who's going to make me happy. Or pride says, go ahead and, and take that drink. Or go ahead and look at that image. You can control it just, just a little bit. Pride makes us arrogant. It keeps the teenager from saying, I was wrong. It keeps the employee from saying, it was my fault. It keeps a husband from saying, I love you. It keeps a wife from saying, I'm sorry. 
Romans 12, 3. I like the Living Bible paraphrase here. It says, don't act big. Don't think you know it all. And it's so easy for us to do that. We start thinking that we are bigger, that we are greater than we are on our own. But isn't it amazing how confident we can be that we're always right? The pride is something that makes us critical. That we can sit down and, and be critical of just about anything. Just ask someone close to you. Just ask them and say, am I a critical or negative person? Am I constantly criticizing things? And we will find out that we are more negative than we think we really are. An uncle of mine built a golf course in Cavendish PEI. And I say he built it. Our family was all involved. There was a lot of work that went into that. And it was a really nice golf course. But then every time my uncle would go play on another golf course, he would always be criticizing. Oh, look at the weeds on, on that fairway or, or the, that green. The green is the short grass where you do your putting. He said, that's not very good grass. It's kind of sketchy. And then he would pick on other things. But I said to him, you know, that's really pride. You're trying to put down the other golf courses to make you feel better about your own. So pride can make us insecure. What if I try and I fail? What if I speak up and nobody agrees with me? What if I express my feelings and I'm rejected? Sometimes we'll see insecurity in a person and think it's humility. But many times insecurity is actually a source of pride. It's just someone being self-conscious. So pride can make us blind to our own weaknesses. But there was an interview done with baseball great Ty Cobb, and it was when he was 70 years of age. And the interviewer asked him this question. He said, what do you think your batting average would be if you were playing in the major leagues today? Now Ty Cobb had a lifetime average of 367. So that meant Every 3.67 times out of 10 that he was at bat, he got a hit. And that was the most that anybody ever had. And so here was his response. He said, I don't know. I'd probably bat 270, maybe 300. And the interviewer said, well, is that because they play night games now and, and the lights would throw you off a little bit and you wouldn't bat as well? Or, or maybe is it the travel schedule that teams are involved in now? There's so many more teams that play. They're all over North America. Or maybe it's playing on this AstroTurf. You're accustomed to playing on real grass. Or maybe it's the new pitches that they have that are tricking the batters. And Ty Cobb said, no, it's just the fact that I'm 70. So he didn't get the, the picture at all. Pride was keeping him from recognizing his weaknesses. So pride can make me presumptuous. It makes me think that I deserve good things that are happening in my life. It makes me think it's unfair if somebody else gets something better than I do. When somebody else gets a bigger slice of apple pie, I have a problem. I want the biggest piece. We're just drawn toward all of that. Beth Moore wrote this about pride. I just want to read this paragraph. My name is Pride, and I'm a cheater. I will cheat you out of your God-given destiny and cause you to demand your own way. 
I cheat you out of contentment because you deserve better than this. I will cheat you out of knowledge because you already know it all. I will cheat you out of healing because you refuse to admit when you're too full of me to forgive. I will cheat you out of holiness because you refuse to admit when you're wrong. I will cheat you out of vision because you would rather look in the mirror than out the window. I'll cheat you out of genuine friendship because nobody's ever going to know the real you. I'll cheat you out of love because real romance demands sacrifice. I'll cheat you out of greatness in heaven because you refuse to wash another's feet on earth. And I'll cheat you out of God's glory because I'm convinced that you just want to seek your own. My name is pride and I'm a cheater. But Paul in Romans 12, 3 said, Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment. So he's basically saying that we need to take an adequate, accurate assessment of who we are in all of this. But sometimes it can be painful to admit the truth, and we have a hard time recognizing our weaknesses. But Mary knows who she is, and her response is, I am the Lord's servant. But I want you to notice that she isn't insecure. We think of humility as Mary saying, Oh boy, God, not little me, I couldn't do this. Isn't there some other young woman that would be more qualified to do the job? She doesn't do that. She just humbly accepts. Humility is not the absence of confidence. John Ortberg wrote this in his book, The Life You Always Wanted. He said, humility is not trying to convince yourself or other people that you are somehow incompetent or unattractive. Humility is not about beating yourself up. Because, let's say you're walking through the cafe area after the service and someone stops you and, and they pay you a compliment and they say, you look really nice today. How do you respond? Do you just kind of look down at your feet and, and, and shuffle them? Oh, not really. It must be the lights from the Christmas tree making me sparkle a little more or something. Or maybe you take the direct approach and say, I'm really interested in, in what you have to say. Tell me more and, and let's celebrate the good news together. Or maybe you're truthful and you say, you're actually giving me a swelled head here. Get behind me, Satan. Or do you just say, thank you, and, and be quiet about it? See, we think of pride as thinking too highly of ourselves, and so humility must mean that we think that we are lower than we really are. Yet Ortberg said that humility isn't thinking less of ourselves, it's just thinking of ourselves less. And somehow Mary has this humility, and, but... At the same time, she has this confidence. And I think it's because she has an accurate view of herself. And she knows she's small, but she also has an accurate view of how big God is. And you look through her song, and she sings about the mighty acts of God. She sings about how God brings down these rulers and how he keeps his promises. Her self-confidence was her actually her confidence in God. Because self-confidence doesn't work because self will let you down. Self-confidence leads to one of two things. It leads either to insecurity 
because you start comparing yourself to others and you don't measure up to everybody. And self-confidence leads to pride. And the Bible says that pride leads to destruction. But God-confidence, which Mary had, leads to humility. And the Bible says that God exalts the humble. And Mary realizes how big God is. And she accepts the value that God has placed upon her. For confidence, we don't look within, we look to him, and we believe what he says about us. And if I look at the bigness of God, and I believe what he has to say about me, it fills me with humility, but at the same time, it gives me a great security. So the song that Mary sings comes right after a great compliment that she receives from her cousin Elizabeth, and that starts in 42. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaps for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that what the Lord has said to her will be accomplished. And the first words from Mary after receiving such a compliment are, my soul glorifies the Lord. In your moments of glory, do you glorify the Lord? That's the test of your humility. When you are honored is your natural instinct to turn around and honor him. And I, I like the living Bible paraphrase of 1 Corinthians 4. Why are you so puffed up? What are you so puffed up about? What do you have that God hasn't given you? If all you have is from God, why do you act as though you've accomplished something on your own? Why would you be proud? What have you done? Everything good comes from God. Because who gave you your mind? Who gave you your looks? Who gave you your hands, your intelligence, your body? You would have nothing if it wasn't from God. Did you decide where you'd be born? Did you decide who your parents would be? Did you decide what your personality would be like? Did you choose those things? Like, what do you have to be proud of? Everything good comes from God, so in your moments of glory, glorify him. And maybe that's why God chose Mary, because he knew he'd get the glory. He chooses the small, he chooses the insignificant things that you and I would never expect because he's going to get the glory. So Mary, she understands where she fits in this whole Christmas story. In a moment, we're going to look at a picture that shows us how small we are and how big God is. Scientists tell us that our Milky Way galaxy, in comparison to the rest of the universe, is just like a quarter in comparison to all of North America. And in 1977, the spacecraft Voyager was launched into space, and it was to photograph the planets of our solar system and then send the pictures back to the Earth. And it was on a one-way mission. And in 1990, it was just outside our solar system some 3.7 billion miles from the earth. And it was traveling 40,000 miles per hour and going away from our sun. And so then scientists sent it a message to take one last picture. And, and that was a picture of the planets that it had passed along the way. 
But it didn't just take one picture. It had to take 60 consecutive pictures. And then on earth, the, the scientists put all those pictures side by side to give one composite photograph. And each picture, if you're a photographer, you'll appreciate this. It had 640,000 pixels. And it took five and a half hours to actually bring the radio signal back to North America. So you think your computer might be slow. And, and the scientists finally received all these photographs and they laid them together in one composite photograph and they were stunned by what they saw. And the picture is called the pale blue dot. So can you see us in there? Then those strip is light coming from the sun. And on the right side, down close to the bottom, that's us, that's the earth. And we think that we're pretty impressive. We think that we're pretty wonderful. And that's how small we are just in comparison to our Milky Way galaxy, let alone the rest of the world. One of the leading scientific voices of the day was an outspoken atheist astronomer named Carl Sagan. And he wrote about the pale blue dot. And he said, that's home. That's us on it. Everyone you love, everyone you know, everyone you've ever heard of, every human being who has ever lived, lived out their life there. Every young couple in love, every hopeful child, every mother, father, inventor, explorer, teacher of morals, politician, superstar, supreme leader, saint and sinner in the history of our species lived there on that point of dust suspended in a sunbeam. The earth is a very small stage on a vast cosmic arena and our posturings, our imagined self-importance, the delusion that we have some purpose position in the universe are challenged by this point of pale light. It's been better uh, said that astronomy is a humbling experience. To my mind, there is perhaps no better demonstration of the folly of human conceit than this distant image of our tiny world. So I'm with him so far on this. But then he closes with this. Our planet is a lonely speck in a great enveloping cosmic dark. In our obscurity and all this vastness, there is not a hint that hope will come from elsewhere to save us from ourselves. And that's where Carl Sagan is so wrong. That hope has come from somewhere else. And there's no hint that that help is going to come from anywhere but Jesus Christ. Because God loved that pale blue dot so much that he sent his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but will have eternal life. We are small. God is immense. But God has given us value. He knows your name. We are little. But he has counted the number of hairs on our head as the scriptures tell us. 2,000 years ago, an angel came to Mary and said, you're going to give birth to a baby, and he is going to be the savior of the world. And she responded with humble obedience. And she said, I, whatever you say, let it be. And now I want to give you a chance to respond in the same way, to humbly say, God, 
I want to give my life to you. I recognize the reason I am on this planet is to know you and to walk with you. And I just want to trust in you as my Lord and Savior. If you've not done that, you can come to the front while we sing and share that with me. You can tell me at the door. You can talk to any of our other pastors and leaders or contact us at the church. But don't go without making that decision.